0: We'll never know for certain exactly how it unfolded or why it unfolded. I think it would be, I mean, it's easy to sling mud at Binance, but at the same time, they're highly transparent, very well resourced and actually operate their exchange and their organization pretty well. Just like a lot of other exchanges out there, Kraken, Coinbase, very transparent, Um one of the things that I think people do forget as well is that these sorts of failures are very much out in the open in the public eye and very transparent because that is the core nature of, of how this industry works is that the ones that aren't transparent and do all these shady deals eventually get caught out.
1: Hello and welcome to the Fortune and Freedom podcast, where Nigel Farage and Nikolai Hubble give you a unique take on what's really going on in the world of finance, investing and politics. We hope you sit back and enjoy this episode. Hello and welcome to This Week in Review without Nigel Farage. I'm sure you can guess where Nigel might be, given what's in the news at the moment. I'm joined today instead by Rob Marstrand and Sam Volkring. Rob and Sam, I was going to ask you who's going to win in the T20 while we're, we're actually recording this, but it looks like England have uh, have done yeah, the so deed far. just in time to ruin my introduction. So let's dig in straight away to what we really should be talking about, which is the latest death of crypto. Sam, you're our crypto expert at South Investment Research. I know we've talked before about how often Bitcoin has died, but is this the real thing?
0: <laughs> no. <laughs> this is a this is another perfect example of a of a failing company, but not
1: a failing asset class. Rob, I know you're not as much of a, a fan of cryptocurrencies as Sam, but how are you perceiving this latest death of crypto?
2: Actually, I'm I'm fascinated by crypto. I'm maybe not quite so bullish as Sam, but uh, but I think it's a you know there are two massive monetary experiments of our times, which both started in the wake of the global financial crisis, have been quantitative easing and zero interest rates, and the cryptocurrencies, and I think they're they're both fascinating. Now uh, QE is certainly not something I've um, been a great supporter of. Uh, I think crypto has slightly fed off the back of that ultra low interest rates and money printing. QE is coming to a crashing end in a wave of inflation and sharply rising interest rates, getting us back to normal in a way. I still think interest rates are far too low for the environment, but uh, we, we're approaching normal, and um, that's damaging all sorts of more speculative asset classes. Um, and crypto is just one of those. And this latest episode, obviously, you know, it, it is still a fairly immature asset class. It's, it's quite new, hasn't been tested under inflationary or uh, conditions or higher interest rates and what we're discovering is um you know it's that adage that uh, warren buffett says is it's only when the tide goes out that you discover who's swimming naked and we're discovering that uh in this immature asset class actually a lot of the people managing some of these organizations are quite immature too in terms of their management skill and their attitudes to risk and customers and so forth and this is just the latest episode and that it, it'll i don't know how how bad it'll get it'll pass i imagine and then at some point, people will get excited about crypto again.
1: Sam, why do people fail to make the same distinction that you do about crypto as a, as a technology and as an innovation and the institutions that keep on failing in various different ways?
0: Greed. It's as simple as that. Um, when there's so much speculative greed to be made, um, that's what catches people's attention. And so that's what they focus on, which you can understand. You know, and and this is this is also what leads to a lot of these failures. Is just this, it's it's the exact same stuff that happens in the world in all markets that is just happening in crypto at the moment. You know, the the reason that the FTX exchange has failed is because they were overlevered against an asset that wasn't very stable. Obviously, um, that they had invented the. There's a lot sort of more technical explanation, but too much too much uh too much borrowing uh not enough tangible assets um, and 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 just greed and and mis, misuse of funds and and
1: inappropriate checks and balances to make sure
0: do you, that, think, that do you think customers don't get fair to
1: say there was a speculative attack on the exchange
0: We'll never know. For certain exactly how it unfolded or why it unfolded, I think it would be, I mean, it's easy to sling mud at Binance, but at the same time, they're highly transparent, very well resourced and actually operate their exchange and their organization pretty well. Just like a lot of other exchanges out there, Kraken, Coinbase, very transparent, Um one of the things that I think people do forget as well is that these sorts of failures are very much out in the open in the public eye and very transparent because that is the core nature of of how this industry works, is that the ones that aren't transparent and do all these shady deals eventually get caught out. And and this is another example. And I wanna I wanna show you this. So this isn't obviously the first exchange that's failed. And it definitely won't be the last. On the the day that it all sort of unfurled, which I think was Tuesday or Wednesday, one of those. My wife passed me a, a note that I got through the through the mail. Now, you might not be able to read that, but it's a note, a little postcard from Japan um, from the Mt. Gox uh, Rehabilitation Trustee. Mt. Gox was the big exchange that failed in 2014. Um, and, it, and those of us that had Bitcoin on the Mt. Gox exchange learned our lesson the hard way back then that when you leave your assets, in the hands of a third party and that third party fails, your assets are gone. We are eight years down the track and any assets that were held on Mt. Gox, we still do not have. I'm getting postcards in the mail from Japan about it. This is a very important reminder to people and I really want to stress this. If you are in crypto and you hold crypto assets, self-custody your assets. Do not hold them on an exchange. Don't care if it's Coinbase, I don't care if it's Binance, Self custody your assets we've seen this happen so many times if you haven't yet got that picture through your mind to self-custody your assets this is another stark reminder to do so
1: what annoys me about it especially is that the whole point of crypto was the opportunity to do that to, to take the institutions that can fail out of the equation and it, it, it's and yet it seems to be the lesson that crypto um buyers
2: seem to continue to need to learn uh, rob sorry what were you going to say I'm just chipping quite uh, quickly by the way that's excellent advice from Sam there on um, self-custody uh, frankly uh, although they're very different assets I'd say the same about gold which is own physical gold in your own possession or, or stored in a vault that's physical without anyone in the ownership chain to you that's always my recommendation Um the point about the speculative attacks whether it's a speculative attack whether there's something nefarious fair is going on the fact is Robust, well-run organizations aren't exposed to speculative attacks of that nature. So, you know that if if that is the case or not, it doesn't matter. It means that they weren't they were a fragile organization if they can go down in that way. And just the last uh, final point, just before we came on, I had a quick look at uh, one of the crypto websites, which has a sort of running chat going on on the side, and uh, it shows how naive some of the customers can be. This goes back to Sam's point, and somebody was asking, um, you know. About FTX, what what will be the time to withdraw my funds? Will it take hours or days? And my answer would be, well, it's how about months, years, or never? Um, I suspect is the answer to that. But people are still thinking they can just get their money out without any problem.
0: There's no doubt. Like the the really unfortunate thing about all this as well is that there are people out there that will be, you know, that will have a lot of their wealth more or less eviscerated, or th- that have been too too over. Exposed to this particular asset class, the old, you know, it's it's the old eggs in one basket discussion again, and and it that is sad. That is really we you never want to see that. That's horrible, and and what it's going to mean is it's going to mean everybody that's just been waiting for for something like this to happen again, ready with their attacks on on overreach, over regulation, anything they can do to try and shut this down. This is just cannon fodder. So these sorts of failures are, are really really annoying because you can do a lot of work to to try and help people to understand that like rob said this is a, this is somewhat of a financial experiment that's at the back of the global financial crisis and there are a lot of great things and benefits and a lot of great people and smart people working on some really interesting and exciting things for the future of, of finance that all takes a back seat when something like this happens and that's a real shame. And and th- it can take years to rebuild that sort of credibility back up again.
1: A lot of those benefits that are supposed to flow from cryptocurrencies are not capital gains. And, and I think that keeps on getting lost. Crypto is not supposed to be a speculative mania. It's supposed to have real tangible um, you know, benefits to people's lives and how it changes our financial system. Rob, I, I want to give you the last word to you on this pati- particular topic. I don't know if this is true, but... There is reason to believe that the chief operating officer of FTX, which is the exchange that failed, used to work for Credit Suisse. So are you surprised by its failure?
2: <laughs> uh, well, for those who don't know, uh, Credit Suisse is is the second largest bank in Switzerland um, and used to be a powerful force in the investment banking world globally and and a huge wealth manager as well. Funny enough, I was looking at it yes- only yesterday. Um, Credit Suisse... Credit Suisse's great um, rival is UBS, which is where I happened to work for, for a, quite a while before, um, and they used to be sort of neck and neck in days when I was there, in terms of their value and their size and their success. I was looking at yesterday, uh, UBS's um, market capitalization is about fifty billion dollars or something like that, that order, which is still um, you know not that big really for a bank that big, and Credit Suisse is down to ten billion. That's, that's the trouble they're in. They're, they're spinning off bits of their investment bank, I think, and they're uh, losing money rapidly. Um, yeah, I mean, look, uh, <laughs> I guess, in a way, uh, what Sam said about there are some really good, serious people in the crypto world, and a lot of those have come out of investment banks and asset managers and so forth. <laughs> but um, there are also a lot of bad people in investment banks and asset managers, and they may have found their way into crypto world too so i don't know about this person individually but uh, that is an interesting connection you there just was made.
1: a bit of an exodus <laughs> yeah, yeah well exodus I, I a, lot
2: them, a lot of them come from deutsche bank as well because that's another one that's got itself in trouble in <laughs> recently given
1: how much fun we're having let's move on to politics sam Bolkering, what do you make of the midterms and the market's reaction
0: uh, do you, uh don't ask me about america <laughs> I, it you know what so I with the with, with the work I do, most of it, we try to be pretty politically ignorant because while politics certainly shape a lot of parts of industry, they don't drive it. They don't drive innovation. Governments don't don't really drive innovation. Um, private industry tends to drive it. Capitalist markets tend to drive it. Uh, so whatever happens in the midterms. You know, we've, how many times have we seen off different presidents and different governors and different senators and they all change. They're a a washing cycle in their own right of just, it's a cacistocracy as far as I'm concerned. And so no matter who's in power, whether it's red or blue, uh, it's all the same and it doesn't change anything. And if things are to move forward, it doesn't matter who's in power.
1: Couldn't agree more, Rob. I don't know if you do.
2: Yeah, I more or less agree. Um, I mean, I get frustrated by uh, how much we're expected to be interested in American elections. I'm not American. I don't live in America. (laughs) And, um, you know, imminently, people will start um, talking about their run for the White House, whoever's running for the White House, and we'll have to put up with this nonsense for two years. Um, No, frankly, I'd rather not hear about it and just someone tell me the result after it's done. I prefer the UK method, which is Prime Minister announces an election and eight eight weeks later, it's all over. Um, But, you know, uh, it is the biggest capital market in the world. So um, it is relevant in that sense. Uh, I think perhaps the most important thing that's come out of this, these midterms, as as from the little that I've been unable to avoid, should we say, is that um, this fellow, uh, Ron DeSantis, who's the governor of Florida, um, has swung that state very heavily to, to the Republicans with the 20 percentage point lead over the Democrats in what used to be a very tight swing state. If you remember the, I don't know if you guys remember the 2000 presidential election where the whole thing hinged on Florida and um, punched holes into voting cards, hanging chads, and it went to Bush and it was all very controversial whether it actually was a fraud. So that's not a new topic, um, uh, election fraud. Um, so that so the, the the question is now whether this this guy who seems to be the new Republican darling uh, actually um, has a has a chance of um, blocking Trump from running um, again, uh, or whether Trump will somehow uh, prevail. So that's probably the the only um, or the main interesting thing for me uh, that comes out of this is what that means for the Republicans. In the meantime, uh, there's a there's a very old man who can't string a sentence together still in charge.
1: <laughs> it's like we're going to Bernie's over there. One of the counter-arguments would be that a lot of people would have had a lot of funds, a lot of their retirements, pension funds invested in the US market, which just had its worst year ever if you adjust for inflation and assume a 60-40 portfolio. But the response to that would be that the fall in the pound pretty much cancelled out those losses. So it's a good example of how adjustments in exchange rates can you know, rebalance, I guess, the performance of a portfolio Um, and and remind us that perhaps what's going on in US politics is not the centre of investors or shouldn't be the centre of investors' attention. Let's move on to something more interesting. The gold price has held up extraordinarily well over the last week, and gold stocks have outperformed other stocks, especially in the US market. I mean, Rob, I know you've been waiting for this. Do you think the outperformance of gold and gold stocks is a meaningful signal the beginning of something, or is this just a a short-term move?
2: Well, look, I, for a long time, I've had a view that people should have an allocation to gold. Um, in a, an inflationary world, I think that should be quite a large allocation. I, I think you know, we, we talked about the QE experiment, the money printing by the central banks, trillions of dollars worth around the world. And government debts in the meantime have gone up to excruciating levels in many uh, developed countries, most developed countries. Um, and I just think at some point we will reach a tipping point where... Um, the cost of refinancing that debt, and a lot of it's very short-term in some countries. Actually, the UK is quite good at that, has quite long-dated debt generally, but a lot of countries have very short-dated debt that has to be rolled over frequently. And when they move from paying half a percent or 1% to paying 5% a year on 100% of GDP, that's going to be a big hit to government finances. So we could see currencies and government finances tipping over. And gold is one of the havens that I think everyone should have as a hedge against that. Cat- catastrophe that said uh, gold's language um it hasn't really done very much this year it's sort of gone sideways um i understand the the kind of short-term reason for that is that uh gold doesn't pay an interest rate and as interest rates go up Tra- short-term traders tend to push gold down but at the same time currencies have been losing purchasing power so gold should be going up my own view is um i think there's a, a lot of pressure has built it's like it's like a a sort of sealed steam cooker or something and the lid's about to blow off. And I, I suspect gold could see quite a sharp rise up, uh, upwards once people realise that this inflation is more embedded than they're assuming. And then we're not going back to 2% sort of early next year. Uh, my, It's difficult to know because governments and central banks, you never know what they're going to do, what side of the bed they're going to roll out each day. But my sort of base assumption is we're in for several years of inflation in the, say, the 3 to 6% range, maybe with the odd spike above that, and, and and we should own gold. And I don't know what's caused the recent uptick, um, but it's maybe just a, that lid's just lifting a little bit and, um, and uh, it's starting its move, but we'll see.
1: I want to finish on house prices. I've been reading a lot of media around the world, and even in Germany, they're worried about falling house prices now. I had my head stuck up in, uh, in an ivory tower in 2006 when the housing market in the US turned down and that sort of was the first domino, I would suggest, uh, in what led to, to the 2008 financial crisis. Is this how things started to play out in 2006, 2007, in terms of house prices falling? Sam, do you, do you recall sort of how those days felt and the, whether the news headlines today are, are very similar? Uh, the, the run up to 2008,
0: I, Rob probably knows. Better than, than I do. I do remember 2008 and 2009, not so much from a housing market perspective, but from an equity market perspective. So, again, I'm probably not the best to to to, to comment on that. I might leave that one for Rob. But right now, it is very clear, and I've said this before, is that central banks, in order to get inflation under control, needed to nuke rates, which meant either crashing the equity market or the housing market. Well, they've pretty much done that with the equity market, so the housing market's next. And Rob's absolutely right. Inflation is not going away. The reason it's not going away is because for the last 14 years, they've been building all of this up. And it wasn't a, in the UK, it wasn't Truss and, and, and Quazi's mini budget or whatever that sent things into a spiral. It was a decade of really poor monetary policy from the central banks. Being pretty bearish on central banks myself, because I think they're they most of them don't really have that much of an idea of of the impact that it has on the real world user of, of economies, people, um, interest rates are going to stay high. They have to stay high. They have to keep going up because you cannot get inflation under control any other way at the moment. It's the only tool they've got left. And if they're going to do that, then there's going to be a lot of people that are going to fall into severe mortgage stress. There's going to be distressed sellers. Um, it is, it's going to cause property prices to continue to fall. It has to, um, what you want to keep an eye out, you want to keep an eye out on on things like you know the the um, defaults, the default rates on on mortgages and things like that. When they start to head higher and higher, then you'll you'll start to get a flavour of of two thousand and
1: eight again. Rob, where are we in that sequence? Are we in two thousand six, seven, or already in eight? Uh,
2: we're in two thousand six or seven. Um, what six, probably? Uh, it depends which country you're talking about. Um, I'll just observe. I've I've lived through two uh, severe markets in property. Um, let's talk about the UK uh, in real terms. Uh, the, the first was from 1990 till 1996, so that's the first observation. That took six years for prices to bottom out in real terms. These are long processes. Uh, to this to this day, I'm really annoyed with myself that I didn't leverage up massively in 1996 and buy the biggest thing I could afford. Um, but I, I was only 24 and I didn't know much about um, these things in those days. And I didn't buy anything until about 1999, I think, um, but still not bad level. Um, and then the uh, the crash uh, from the financial crisis, um, I believe that was in the UK, prices actually peaked in 08, um, which happened to be when I sold. I got that one right. I sold in, in I think, April or May 2008, uh, right at the top of the market. And the estate agent actually said to me, I was the last one out of the trap last one out of the gate or something along those lines. Um, but in real terms, again, prices took until 2013 to hit a bottom, and that was despite, despite interest rates being cut drastically and QE being started. So that's that's a five-year um, bear market. So you've got a six-year and a five-year. I think we're at the very start of a multi-year bear market in houses. Um, and I don't think anyone, you know, notwithstanding panicky uh, headlines in the media, I think we're going to get a lot more panicky headlines and it's going to last for five years and it's going to, or six years and it's going to be very boring because it's going to be endlessly repeated. But I wouldn't buy it. I wouldn't leverage up in property right now. If I was a first time buyer or thinking about that, I certainly wouldn't get in. I'd just be patient and keep, you know, save as much money as I can and wait for prices to drop a lot.
1: It's too late, Rob. I bought my house uh, about two months ago, but um, (laughs) there's a, a different question I want to ask both of you that's related to what Rob just said. A lot of people make these historical illusions, you know, based on how long bear markets last at all, or the cycles and how long they last. My worry is that we're facing some unusual situations. We've got more debt than ever before. We've got a, a bounce of inflation during a period of, of very high debt. We've got <laughs> central banks massively behind the curve, <laughs> negative real interest rates. We've got a lot of political issues. We've got the, the geopolitical trouble as well. There's so many things going wrong or or... Um, so many, you know, so much straw on the camel's back that I don't know if those historical allusions are especially valuable anymore because they didn't feature the same amount of potential problems. So do you think, do, well, do you agree with that setup? And do you think this time could be worse in some sort of way, Sam? Um, well, no, no, no events, no,
0: whether it's a black swan event or whether it's a bear market or a bull market is ever the same as the one from previous they're always different with different factors different levels of of turmoil um or euphoria depending on which part of the cycle you're in um so they're always going to be different and it's it's funny you know people are like oh you're always eternally optimistic about things I was like well yeah I am because it comes back to just basic principles of, of finance. It's about like we said before, it's it's not having all your eggs in one basket. It's about being prudent with leverage if that if you're using that. It's about having liquidity. One of the biggest problems we've seen over the last year or year and a half now or whatever is liquidity. It's it's issues with liquidity is that companies and investors have not had any liquidity. Um, so you need some liquidity. As much and all as it's annoying when inflation is out of control. In, in, in something like the UK even you know the cost of living is is skyrocketing you've still got to have some liquidity you have still got to have a bit of cash tucked away somewhere because sometimes you need to meet obligations and so you need those things and so you need a bit of gold exposure because if, cause if central banks fail then we're all up that creek without a paddle you need some equities because if you're a long-term investor it's a great time to be buying because if you've got some great companies that have just been really hit by the overall market it's a it's a it's a shooting barrel and a fish for some companies out there. so you've got to be just prudent and smart about your overall portfolio and, and we've become people have become far too addicted to just trying to shoot for the meme stock gains in one hit it's like those are out there don't get me wrong those are absolutely there for the taking as well but you don't put everything in there so same with your house you know you don't don't leverage up to 95 percent lvrs you know if 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 you can't have a loan-to-value ratio of 60% or below, buy a cheaper house. Um, you know, it's just smart, sensible moves like that. Keep you sleeping at night without worrying about it and optimistic about the future. Rob, do you think
1: this time is different?
2: Well, I think I've mentioned this to you before, Nick, but um, I'm not convinced that inflation will get as bad as it did in the 60s and 70s. Um, However, because the level of public, corporate and household debt is so high in so many countries, the effect could be just as bad in terms of how much it hurts people. So, um, you know, as interest rates go to these sort of more normal levels, let's say 5%, 6% a year, um, people are going to suffer because they're just going to have this huge interest burden. Eventually, you know, eventually they have to, even if they're, they're on fixed rates, well, they've issued fixed income bonds. In the case of companies or governments, they have to refinance at some point, and then then the pain really starts. So it may actually be a delayed uh, effect. May not, although people think it's bad this year, it may actually get a lot worse in a couple of years' time, when people have to start refinancing um, a lot. Uh, so we'll, we'll we'll see what happens. I, I suspect we're in for a very difficult ride for quite a long time. Uh, in the investment world, I think it. it as Sam says, it makes sense to have some cash, even though it's losing buying power, but just to have that liquidity that you can quickly deploy when an opportunity a- appears. Um, and we're going to see lots of ca- instances of that. There have been a few this week, actually, because the US is going through reporting season and companies come out with slightly disappointing results. And they're you know we're seeing uh, share prices crash 10, 20% in a day, and often overdoing it. And that those are often opportunities to nip in and buy some uh, for the patient investor. Wait, wait for things to get better. Uh, but by and large, I'd stick to you know pretty low risk stuff. Have some cash to do that sort of thing. Have some um, very uh, you know cheap value stocks with high dividend yields of companies with low or no debt. Avoid at all costs loss making companies with high debts because uh, they're going to struggle to refinance. People may the money may, may simply not be there. When they need to recapitalize um, and own some physical gold uh, as well, um, for reasons we discussed before, and and those you know an, op- an opportunity might be those um, those gold mining shares. You know, if gold does eventually take off, they could rock it as they did in in previous inflationary times, and also uh, keep half an eye on the rest of the world. But, you know, just look for opportunities or crises, even around the world and then if you can nip in once the worst of it's over you know say wait three to six months till the worst of it's over if there's a way in do what i call taking your, your money on a crisis vacation so it's like it's like going to a place that's just had a currency melt and you get a cheap holiday in the hotel we'll take your money over there buy some shares or some property or whatever and you'll probably do pretty well over the next you know two three four five years um, but it, it you know it, it's going to be a i think it's going to be a rocky ride for a little while a few months ago we asked some subscribers um you know what they remember at
1: the 70s um and we expected some some pretty you know bad stories about people's struggling. thing and we got the opposite we got people saying it was great because you know inflation was very high and our wages were going great <laughs> interest rates were low and everything was booming the unemployment was very low and, and of course this, this time feels so different because wages are not booming. Real wages are plunging. Interest rates are still miles behind inflation. We haven't had that boom. We're going into recession. Yet. So this this inflation cycle feels very different and, and very bizarre, really, to people, I think, who remember the 70s because it, it's so different, not just because they're experiencing it from a different angle as well.
0: It's also worth noting we haven't yet seen unemployment move either. And that's when that really starts to ratchet up, which it will, we know it will uh that's when we'll that's when the it'll things will get worse before they get better but i still think ultimately they'll get better. i'd keep an eye out for the
1: inflation number sorry the unemployment numbers too it's usually the period of getting inflation back under control that's that that's the negative part it's the the inflation boom is supposed to be quite quite enjoyable at first quite a positive period And, and it's strange that we haven't had that experience
2: sorry rob well I was just going to say I agree agree 100% with Sam on the unemployment point. Um people are moaning at the moment they can't staff their restaurants or whatever. That won't be a problem for long, trust me. Um and we're and we're seeing it in the other end of the scale. We're seeing it now in a lot of the big tech companies and the smaller tech companies uh laying off large numbers of people. I think um didn't matter uh the Facebook people announced 10,000 people. Yeah. Yeah. Uh something like that and 11. Twitter is twitter twitter sacked half their people i believe and and the, I, there are lots of others i forget all the names now but there's there's a lot of that going on in that that area which has been in an employment bubble boom whatever you want to call it for quite a few years um so unemployment uh, certainly will be an issue um but don't forget you can have high unemployment and high inflation at the same time they're not mutually exclusive so um just because there's unemployment doesn't mean there won't be wage demands the unions as we've seen are coming rushing to the fore again um but but I do agree that unemployment is a, an important thing to watch an
1: inflationary cycle without the boom without the benefits the boom is a pretty bad prospect thanks for joining me Sam and Rob and Deborah at home thanks for watching